Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California's lack of rain this past winter and spring has left vegetation dry and ripe for ignition, paving the way for an intense wildfire season. We talk with a fire researcher about what to expect in 2021. But first, as technology columnist Jeffrey Fowler writes in The Washington Post, smartphone video was critical in convicting Derek Chauvin of murdering George Floyd. He joins us, along with Brendisha Tynes, to talk about what it means to bear witness safely, effectively, and ethically. We'll get started after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The anguishing cell phone video of George Floyd's murder, captured by teenager Darnella Fraser, lay at the heart of the prosecution's case against the former police officer convicted of his killing. Bystander videos can provide important counter-narratives to official police accounts and can sometimes de-escalate violent confrontations. But there's a lot to consider, including the psychological impact of bearing witness on individuals and communities. Joining me now is Brendisha Tynes, Professor of Education and Psychology at USC Russier School of Education. Professor Tynes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Jeffrey Fowler, technology columnist for The Washington Post. His recent column is called, You Have the Right to Film Police. Here's how to do it effectively and safely. Jeffrey Fowler, also glad to have you on as well. Thanks for having me and shining a light on this important topic. I want to start with you, Dr. Tynes. You've referenced the courage it took for Darnella Fraser to press record that day. Could you share some of your reflections on what she managed to do as a young person under those circumstances? Yes, she saw George Floyd on the ground and this amazing team had the presence of mind to send her nine-year-old cousin inside the Cup Foods market for safety and then film George Floyd's murder despite being threatened with mace by the police. Um, it, it was an, a remarkable uh, act of bravery and resistance. And Jeffrey Fowler, from a technological standpoint, she managed to do 
a lot of things that you found from talking with lawyers and technologists, activists, as well as the police, um, that she managed to do a lot of things technically right. Can you talk about what she did? Yeah, Darnella Frazier, I think it gave us all a masterclass in how to act um, and how to use your cell phone in these sorts of cases. I mean, what she understood kind of uh, that was so incredible is that, you know, the smartphone is the eyes of the nation now. That's how one um, one Black mother who made an app to help record police put it to me. And what she did right was she acted like a journalist in this situation. She stood back from the police to keep herself uh, safe. She had to keep her phone from being confiscated. She used a very steady hand as she recorded. So for a long period of time, so that the evidence would really um, uh, make an impact. And, and then also she posted her video on Facebook. So the world could see this raw evidence. And that ended up being, being an act that, you know, changed the course of history. Um, you know, we can also have a further conversation about when and how you should post this kind of stuff to Facebook, but no doubt she, she made a really big impact. Well, we will definitely, things. yes. And we will definitely have that conversation as this conversation continues. But I do want to ask you, Jeffrey Fowler, about the fact that she also recognized she had every right to film, which is also the title of your piece in the Washington Post, you have the right to film police. So then after interviewing several experts, does an officer have a right to tell you to leave to turn off your camera? Right? I think this is this is news to a lot of Americans. And we all need to 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 take a moment and realize yes, the First Amendment gives us the right to film police who are actively performing their duties. Um, you know, if they're you know in a uniform and they're out there and they're in a public place such as a street or a sidewalk, or even if they're in a uh, on private property where you have permission to film them, uh, where you have permission to be there, you also have the right to film them. But you can't get in the way of a police officer doing his or her job. So the police officer could say to you please stand back, please move back. And you have to do that if they ask you to do that. If they put up a yellow tape, you can't cross that line. But there is some degree of, of, of squishiness in the law about how far back they can ask you to stand. But they shouldn't ask you to stand so far back that you can't see what's going on. They shouldn't ask you to stand so far back that you can't bear witness. That is your right as an American. And the other thing that I was interested in seeing you point out was that Darnella Fraser did not necessarily narrate the experience or what was going on in the moment. And this was something that when you spoke with a retired commander with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office told you she did right. Yeah, you know, she acted like a journalist. And that means that uh, she wasn't providing a, a ton of ongoing commentary. You know, the problem is if you start getting engaging in a back and forth with a police officer in this tense situation, look, it can be very hard to not respond to what you're seeing something that's happening in front of you that is terrible. But if you do start engaging with a police officer, then you become part of the story. And if you become part of the story, then the story changes, right? Your job in this instance is to bear witness, and that can have a really powerful impact. Another thing that she did right that I think is really worth pointing out is she held her phone out in front of her. She made it very obvious that she was filming. She didn't try to hide it in her jacket or be, you know, uh, unclear about it. Like she was like, look, here's my phone. I'm filming. Because in a tense situation, you know, the cops, uh, they, you know, if they see you reaching for something, maybe 
you know, it could be your phone, but we know that police have mistaken uh, uh, phones for guns before. And you don't want to get in that situation. So just be really clear that you're filming us. I think another key lesson here. I, I just want to step back for a second, Brendisha Tynes, and just sort of take stock of the fact that that it's sad that we even have to have a show that's asking for advice on how to film interactions with law enforcement, um, that it's been necessary because as you've documented, it comes at a psychological cost. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we have, uh, we conducted a study of an, using a national uh, sample of Black and Latinx uh, 11 to 19 year olds. And we found that exposure to what we call traumatic events online. And that's seeing a police killing or um, watching someone uh, get arrested or seeing uh, immigrants detained in cages, right? That exposure to these events online is associated with uh, increased depressive symptoms, um, as well as uh, PTSD symptoms. And can you also talk about, Jeffrey Fowler mentioned that she posted it on Facebook. And one of the, the pieces of advice that Fowler got for his piece was to think before you share. Can you talk about the extent to which we should be sharing these given the kinds of profound impacts it can have, especially on young people? I actually do not share um, videos of police killings. And uh, I think we should be thinking before we before we share, talking to the families, um, getting permission, um, and also, I, people of color, I actually, you know, I, I don't share because I'm trying to protect them because I know the um, psychological cost um, of, you know, being exposed to these traumatic uh, events online. And so um, we do need, I think more white people still um, need to see these videos, but for people of color, I, I recommend um, avoiding them uh, as much as they can. Jeffrey Fowler, what else did you hear in terms of the advice you received about thinking before you share these kinds of videos? Yeah, you know, um, it is definitely it, know that these videos contain uh, a major psychological impact for the people who are watching them. And, and in particular, the, the survivors of if you filmed someone who's this is their last breath on earth, think for a moment, what is their family going to think about that video being out there, that video potentially becoming, you know, going all over the internet and becoming the lasting memory of, of their loved one. And, uh, you know, we should, you should think about allowing that family, those survivors to remain in control of that person's humanity. So that's a big part of it. So I think if you do film something happening that is bad, I think the first step should not necessarily be to post it to Facebook. It should be to find that person's family, find that person's lawyer, find that, find, find some community organization that will have the big picture about what is the right thing to do with that video. Uh, because there's also sort of a strategy element here as well. Look, if you've caught the, uh, a police officer breaking the law, you know, not living up to his or her duty, um, 
that, you know, there's going to then become this whole uh, game, uh, uh, word isn't game, but this whole strategy element of when do you re release your video versus when the police might release their video? What does each video show? So you might not be able to see the big picture that a lawyer can. So get it in the hands of a lawyer who you trust. Again, Jeffrey Fowler is technology columnist for The Washington Post, and his recent column is called You Have the Right to Film Police. Here's how to do it effectively and safely. Also with us is Brendisha Tynes, professor of education and psychology at USC's Rossier School of Education. We're talking about bystander videos of police misconduct and considerations to take into account if you're in a position to film a law enforcement interaction that you find concerning. And we'd like to hear from you. Have you ever tried to film the police? What happened? Are you concerned about how bystander videos that document police violence are shared? You can give us a call at 866 733 Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Elizabeth writes, the police are publicly funded civil service organizations conducting their business in public spaces such as streets, parks, and shared spaces. There should be no question that the public has an unlimited right to see, record, and comment on any activity they engage in. The police and all law enforcement agencies should conduct their business with the idea that the people of this country are watching them and will hold them accountable for misconduct and abuse of power. That said, very quickly as we get into the break, Jeffrey Fowler, what did you hear about private property? What should be done on private property? Yeah, the same rules basically apply to filming the police on private property as would to filming anybody on private property. That if it's if you know if you're in someone else's space, um, they could ask you to stop. You could be violating um, somebody's privacy by doing so. But you know, uh, I think you know, err towards filming. I think in this case, if this is. Uh, you know, if this is a police officer, you know, doing their job. And I think, in fact, many police departments across the country now have explicit policies about this. And, you know, the good police officers should even uh, encourage this, right? They want to have the evidence out there that shows that they did the right thing in the, in the moment. So I think everybody can win from this if we do it right. We'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how to film a concerning police encounter effectively and ethically and with consideration for its impact on viewers, especially when you think about sharing it. We're joined by Jeffrey Fowler, technology columnist for The Washington Post, Brandisha Tynes, professor of education and psychology, psychology at USC's Rustier School of Education, and you, our listeners, are with us. Have you ever tried to film a law enforcement interaction and what happened? Are you concerned? about how bystander videos that document police violence are shared. Give us a call at 866-733-6786 if you'd like to join the conversation. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions and comments to forum 
at kqed.org. Bernadette Tynes, as we were talking about how traumatizing or re-traumatizing these videos are, uh, especially if we were not planning to come across them and we, we see them on autoplay in our feeds, for example, I'm wondering what you think media should do in terms of playing these kinds of videos. Do you have thoughts on that? I, so I agree with some of my colleagues who have said we should um, stop uh, sharing um, the videos. And I, you know, I support and, you know, um, you know, I, I, I can see why um, they're arguing that we should stop sharing these videos. But um, without the videos, you know, especially in the George Floyd case, we would have had, you know, the police report that said this was a medical incident. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, for as long as we have a system of policing that allows police to kill black and brown people with impunity, we need to share the videos. Um I, you know, I, I think that there should be um, more sort of um, thought put into how much um, we're sharing um, and more care um, for the families sort of, um, you know, in when we um, share the videos, um, but they definitely need to be shared. Yes, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more in terms of how we balance the need to have these videos with the harms they cause. You were sort of touching on that, but do you have any any thoughts about about guidance around that? Um, I I think so. First, um, we we need to help people of color to. Um, protect their own mental health um, when watching the videos. Um, and so, you know, more sort of uh, need, more needs to be done in schools, um, more needs to be done online to um, help people of color to protect their mental health. Um, as far as guidance um, with uh, guidance for media, um, I would say to um, think about the the families um, who you know are having their you know uh, as we mentioned before their family members' last breath um, you know videoed for the world to see um, and so that that should be our first concern and then um, also sort of thinking through. Um, you know, the, the mental health of people watching. Um, we, we do need to show them and, you know, I need to um, think through a bit more, um, you know, how we would, how I would 
recommend um, yes. us showing them. Well, one of the things too about sharing videos is that once they are out in the public sphere, you're also exposed to all the ways that the public is reacting to it, including right. minimizing or even questioning those kinds of things. And exactly. how does that compound trauma for people when you see that kind of reaction or, or ultimately too, if the officers involved do not face any kind of reprimand, much less a charge or conviction? Oh, it enhances, you know, the depressive symptoms, the PTSD, um, the feelings of sheer, you know, exhaustion that people of color experience after, you know, police are able to get off. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the harm, the psychological harm um, of the videos um, you know, more needs to be, um, more needs to be, people need to understand uh, what the harm, um, the, the, the harm that it causes, but also, um, at the same time, uh, we can't stop showing them, right? Um, because people will continue to get off on, and we won't have accountability, um, for for the police who are causing the harm. Well, let me go to caller Roly in Oakland. Hi, Roly. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you for letting me on. Um, my question is: Using a George Floyd case, um, what? How exactly do you see uh, all these really good and honest people who helped uh, expose the murder? Um, how, what's the process? Are you are you that you're thinking? You, uh, should you? If you video something like this, something horrific, do you then search out the parents or the seek out the parents or a lawyer, uh, their lawyer? Um, if the cops ask you for it, what do you say? Um, just go over the details because because of George Floyd, uh, because of this murder, Black Lives Matter and a lot of white people began to realize the seriousness and the, the extreme amount of this going on. So how do you allow the social justice movement to to kind of move ahead. Should it all be done? Should you take your video and just give it to the parents and say, I saw this or how, how just, uh, just go over how it should be done. Mm. Roly, thanks. Uh, Jeffrey Fowler, do you want to start? Sure. Um, it's an excellent question and we should talk specifics. So um, I like what the caller suggested. If you record something like this, um, a, a good first step is to try to find uh, the family of the person who was involved. They might be able to connect you with that person's lawyer. If you can't find them, then go seek out a community organization who you think will have the appropriate context and might be able to help you find that lawyer um, and help help you find uh, find those people. Because the truth is, um, you know, just going in immediately to Facebook or Twitter or whatever, um, social media is not necessarily your friend in, in these kinds of situations. First of all, F Facebook has been famously fickle about what it will and will not allow to be shared from these, uh, from these kinds of incidents and others. So you lose control in that sense when you put it on uh, instantly on Facebook. Another thing is once it's on Facebook, it could be copied and could be taken, could be edited, could be, you know, the context could be shifted 
lifted. The police could then see that video on Facebook and try to use it to make it make their own case, right? They could see in it some things that you don't see or that you're not able to see. So that's why I think going again first to that family or to the lawyer is a really good step. Um, the caller also mentioned that the police could ask you for a copy of the video. That is true. They could ask you to um, to send it to them in, circum in certain circumstances. Actually, an officer could even sort of temporarily seize your phone and try to get a search warrant to go through it. This is one reason why um, technologists like the ACLU uh, recommend that we all really need to lock down our phones so that we remain in control of them. So all modern iPhones and Android phones have encryption in them, but it, encryption only works if you put uh, that lock code on the, 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 the screen. So it should probably be at least six digits and you should know that. And uh, as long as that's on there, the police officer um, can't force you to tell them your code so that they can access it. If the police do get your phone and you share the video with them, they're not allowed to delete it. This is a really important thing. Uh, you know, there may be you know, situations where someone might try, but that would be against both the First Amendment and also the rules of, of good policing. So, uh, so, so again, no, you have rights in those situations. One of the things I was struck by was you suggesting, Jeffrey Fowler, that you even turn off the function that allows face ID so that it it's not so easy necessarily for the police to open it without your permission or to get rid of a copy of the video if somebody feels that they do not want it out there. Yeah, if you're if you know you're heading into a protest situation or a very tense situation, um, you know just learn how to temporarily turn off Face ID or the fingerprint ID or whatever it might be, uh, which are techniques that police could use to try to access your phone without your um, you know your explicit permission by holding it up to your face or you know handcuffing you and putting your thumb on it or whatever. So um, so yeah, do think about ways to lock down your your phone before you film. You know another thing a lot of people think could be useful is if you live stream what you're recording to something like Facebook, then you know that a copy of the video is at least stored somewhere on the internet. That means that, that the police could not delete it even if they got your phone and they got into it. And that is true. But once again, um, you know, if you're posting and, and, and publishing from the very beginning, you are not necessarily in control of what happens to that video anymore. Um, it could be, you know, taken by somebody else. It could also be taken by police. You could, for example, decide after the fact that you don't want this video out there at all because it doesn't, um, you know, serve the, the purposes of the person you're trying to help. Um, but if you, if you publish it from the very beginning, um, you lose that control. And Amy writes, what if the police attempt to prevent you from filming something either verbally or physically? You touched on this too, Jeffrey Fowler. Yeah. So, you know, you can say to them in a very calm way, your hands are in front of you. You're not a threat. You're stepping back. You can say to them, my understanding is I have the right to record in this public place. Um, I can step back. Where would you like me to stand? Uh, you know, mostly that, that police officer is going to be in a really tense situation. They want to mostly just make sure that you're not a threat. Most police officers, you know, understand, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of training that now goes on for them. They should understand that you have that right, but they may not want you so close. And so step back, look, just use the zoom function on your camera. The microphones on these cameras, on these phones now are also really good. And you can, you can still pick up, um, you know, something that's going on, you know, more than 12 or even 20 feet away. Uh, depending on the the, the, the noise level. So um, as a general rule, just stand back so you don't seem to be a threat and the police officer will leave you alone and you're less likely to get into one of these situations where there's a lot of back and forth, where you become part of the story or your phone gets seized. Let me Can go I to call her. Oh, quick, yes, please, Brindisha Times. Very quickly. 
We sort of have a different system of policing for black and brown people, right? And so we have to think about our recommendations. Um, and, and I think we're assuming that, you know, police know our rights and will respect them, right? Um, and we're assuming that they don't um, see black and brown people as threats. Um, you know, we are assuming a lot of things um, in some of the recommendations that we're making. And we just want to be mindful that um, black and brown people have safety concerns, um, right? That um, we have to think about before um, we encourage them to you know, take these videos. Well, I think that's such a good point, which is also one of the things that I wanted to ask you about with regard to what to consider if you are in a position to take a video, especially if you're a black and brown person, there is the risks associated with that, the, the psychological issues associated with that, the aftermath and what to deal with in that case. Do you have any thoughts on that, Professor Tynes? Um, yes. So first of all, we want people alive. Um, we, we want you to, I want my people to live. Um, and so consider your own safety, um, before you take these videos, um, as, as people are preparing, we definitely, need to stay rooted in whatever spiritual practice we follow, um, you know, meditation, prayer. Uh, we also need to stay um, connected to the communities um, that bring us social support and joy and engage in the cultural practices um, that, you know, bring us joy. Um, and then in the aftermath, I, I think recognizing that, you know, you are doing one of the most powerful things that you could do in that situation, right? Um, intervening um, could risk your life, um, you know, and it's, it's just not wise. And so, to blame yourself for, for not intervening, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you shouldn't um, intervene in that way, but you can resist, you can document um, what's happening. And, and that puts you in the most powerful position that you could be in. Well, Erica writes, one thing I keep returning to is that the young woman who took the George Floyd video may be in danger from police or white nationalist violence. She's incredibly brave and has done a huge service to this country, but I do not want her to suffer from it. I think making and keeping copies of the video and her sharing discreetly with only a few people, then going to the families, the ACLU, a trusted ally to discuss what is the next best step with also a goal of keeping the videographer safe and well. And Jeffrey Fowler, a couple of apps that you came across as potential filming apps for folks. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, I just want to echo what the what the reader wrote that, you know, 
protecting the safety of the person doing the filming is, is another really good reason to be very careful about, about sharing it, you know, and, and putting it in the hands of people who are, are, who are maybe not going to be as at much risk, um, you know, personally for having it out there. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Uh, there are specialized apps out there that can help uh, can help if you're in these kinds of situations. Um, in general, my advice would be, you know, use the app you're most comfortable with, the one that you can have, you know, with a steady hand in the moment and, you know, film the, the, the best video that you, that you can from that safe distance. Um, but, the, but there are some, for example, the ACLU has an app that works in, in uh, many different states and it has both advice as well as sends a copy of what you're filming to the ACLU lawyers so that they have a um, copy of it. That app is called Mobile Justice, um, and it's got just a lot of, um, uh, of great info. Then there's also an app that's called Just Us, as in J-U-S-T-U-S, uh, that was made by uh, uh, a Black mother and psychotherapist in Los Angeles. And basically, the idea is that if, uh, if you're uh, a black person who's in a car and gets pulled over by the cops, or you're in some kind of situation that you feel could be unsafe in an encounter with the cops, you use this app and you, you can even use voice activation to immediately send a notice to uh, people in your trusted uh, circle and community uh, that, that, you're in a, that you're in a situation. And then it will also immediately start uh, broadcasting video of of what uh, what's occurring um, and and a key element I think of this app is that it is voice activated. There's actually even a, a separately there's a Siri shortcut you can get for iPhones that will uh, that will start video recording remotely without you having to touch your phone because again if you're you know behind the wheel of a car and you're in a tense situation with with the cops you may it may be very unsafe for you to try to reach for your phone or to hold your phone to record the, the police officer while it's happening. So at least this can just sort of get us started, uh, started just by your voice. Well, Jeffrey Fowler, really appreciate having you on today to talk about the considerations that we have to take into account if we are in a position to film a law enforcement interaction. And uh, Jeffrey Fowler's column is called, You Have the Right to Film Police. Here's how to do it effectively and safely technology columnist for the Washington Post. Also, Brendita Tynes, professor of education and psychology at USC, Russier School of Education. Really appreciate having your insights as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having Thank me. you. And uh, thanks to our listeners for sharing their questions and their reflections on the fact that we are even having this conversation. We'll be talking wildfires next and what to expect with regards to California's wildfire season. So stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.